Welcome to Feeling It, a podcast where we discuss TV, movies, pop culture, and whether or not we are feeling it. If this is your first time joining us, welcome to the show. And here we go. Come on, walk and talk. Alright, here we go. You guys want to hear something neat? It's showtime! Hold your ears, folks. Here we go! See what you can do now. Take your position. Alright, ladies, buckle up. Let's do this. Hold on to your butts. Seriously? Listen to me very, very carefully. Hey, it's me again. Eat him up. Enjoy. Well, I was thinking it would be fun to do like a either like what kind of X-Men power would you want to have or like Ooh, I like that. Do you have any actual genetic mutations? Because I do. Okay, now you're showing up. It's yeah. my multicolored <laughs> beard. A multicolored beard is evidently a genetic mutation. Oh, I, right? I have that too. Yeah, so you're an X-Men as well. It's like a super <laughs> lame power. I don't know what they would call you if you went to Xavier's school for gifted youngsters. So you just automatically that that counts as yeah, it <laughs> doesn't seem fair. All right. This week on Feeling It, Sandra's out, but the rest of us have gathered together to bring to you, the, for the first time ever, a bottle episode of Feeling It. We are bottle all in, episode. Yes, we're, <laughs> we're all in the same room in Chicago. We all came here to see Brent um, and are doing this live. Sitting so, eerily close around one microphone. <laughs> Yep. And no matter when you're listening to it, it's still it's live. It's live. It's definitely live. <laughs> oh man. So this week what we're gonna do is we're gonna we're gonna talk about what we're feeling this week. We're gonna go into a little bit of film news. Um, and then we're gonna talk about our main topic, which is Chicago and what what uh, what our favorite piece of Chicago centric what our favorite piece of Chicago centric pop culture is. You got it. So we're gonna go around the room and introduce ourselves. And since X Men Apocalypse came out this weekend, um, go ahead and say what your favorite X Men movie is, Brent. My name is Brent Bailey. I live in Chicago, Illinois, where I work in tech, and I also write about uh, film and theology a few different places online. My favorite X Men film is uh, Days of Future Past. A really complicated title, but it's a phenomenal story. It's got all the best actors from the whole series. Uh, it's remarkably bleak, and I never get tired of that film. I'm Lawson Soward, an art director from Nashville, Tennessee. Very excited to be in the Windy City this morning. And uh, my favorite X-Men movie, I'm not really one to say like the original is the best or uh, to be glued to that kind of thing most of the time, but I feel like the original X-Men really redefined what superhero movies could be, and it's just been hard for any other X-Men movie to touch it for me. So the original X-Men. Uh, I'm Lucas Wright, a designer in the Bay Area, and my favorite X-Men movie is probably going to be X-Men First Class, which I feel like redefined how the X-Men franchise should be treated, and I think it's gone downhill since then, but I think it's a, a really great movie. The franchise is a roller coaster. Yeah, it's a lot of ups and downs. <laughs> completely all over the place, which is one of the reasons we're not going to talk about this one right now. <laughs> um, so let's go ahead and kick it off with what we've been feeling this week. Lawson, um, tell us about the great British baking show. Yes. So have you guys ever seen this? I have seen one episode, and it is the most posh thing I've ever seen. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> posh is one way to describe it, Brent. Have you seen it? I have not seen a single episode. Okay. So I have always been very turned off by competitive cooking shows and competitive baking shows. People are just so... I mean, Gordon Ramsay is so intense, all the people in these situations. It's so high stakes, all the drama is so amplified, and people are just kind of vicious to each other, um, which I get. Like, that's good for ratings, and it's good for um, putting together this three-act episode and all that kind of stuff. But it's just, I have enough stress, and I have spent enough time in the service industry in my life 
to not get that much enjoyment out of watching other people experience that. So um, the Great British Baking Show is the foil to our American persuasion. It is like putting on a warm blanket in video and like TV show form. It's everyone's so kind to each other. Um, it's every one of the baking challenges. It's like they get to go home and practice. They're all <laughs> amateurs. Um, and they all say that they're amateurs and it like shows human interest pieces on in all of them. Like this is David. He cooks in his spare time while also, uh, working as a fireman. His, Two children love his baked scones most of all. And it like shows the kids being like, We're proud of our dad. And like and then it cuts back and everyone's like, David, we're so glad you're here. Like it's, it's so nice. And everyone, um, they have it's so funny because they'll be like, All right, ready, set, bake. You have five hours for this challenge. <laughs> like they give you because baking takes so long. Um, it's been on for I think five or six series now in BBC, but only two seasons in the US. Um, it's called the Great British Bake Off in uh, the UK, but in the United States, it's called the Great British Baking Show and is streaming. The first season streaming on Netflix. The second season is only on PBS right now. Um, but. It's just, it's the most comforting thing you could possibly watch. Um, everyone is so supportive. Even when people get kicked off, they're like, um, you know, you've done a great job. We're so sorry that you're going. Like, uh, you're, I remember one time in particular, people really liked this person, so they had to be kicked off. It was kind of like everyone admits that it's a competition, but they don't like that it's a competition. And so at the end of it, they're like, we're so sorry. Like, not everyone can stay and you have to go. Um, and then at the end, they're like, you're, you've been eliminated. The thing I remembered specifically was, you've been eliminated, but you're still well-loved. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just, it's, it's the opposite of being cutthroat. And I really enjoy it. And if you're ever feeling bad, you're ever sick at home for ever anything, I, that thing is the, like, it's medicine for your eyes and for your heart. So I cannot heartily enough recommend The Great British Baking Show. Um, just been watching season two this week, and that is what I'm feeling. Two things. One, can you do the rest of the show in your British accent? Say the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> and two, has it encouraged you to bake at all? Uh, no, I actually, <laughs> uh, I've been enjoying more. So baking. not inspiring. No, no, no. <laughs> it's inspiring because Lindsay's my wife has been baking more. So I've been very like I've been on the positive receiving end of the yeah. inspiration while continuing to be lazy and just watch Netflix for my part of it. <laughs> oh man! Well, awesome. Brent, what are you feeling this week? Well, continuing my theme of being entirely irrelevant to current pop culture conversations, this week <laughs> I am uh, feeling a 2005 book of essays, uh, Consider the Lobster by David Foster Wallace, uh, who most people know for Infinite Jest or even uh, his um, This Is Water commencement address. Obviously, he's got a few other books um, and lots of different essays. Uh, my initial introduction to David Foster Wallace was uh, his death in 2008. Uh, I remember it being one of those deaths that, uh, for a lot of the people I knew, was not just, um, it wasn't just that it was sad or that it felt like a loss, but it was, it really, it hit people hard, um, and it seemed like for a lot of people that represented um, kind of a certain despair or a certain hopelessness that, that just cut a little deeper than, you know, I really like this guy, I really like his writing, it, it felt kind of hopeless. I remember um, that too, I was not even aware of him as a writer, but I remember people talking about it like, there are so few truth tellers in the world and the world has one less right now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my initial read of, I started reading Wallace because so many people that I'm close to love his stuff. 
Uh, and my initial read of him was that he was entirely too cynical and biting for me, which if anybody who knows me knows that that could not be farther from my personality. And to be fair, uh, there are definitely in his writing, he can be pretty bleak. Uh, there's one essay, the essay from this book, Consider the Lobster, talking about attending like a lobster festival. Uh, he has this line about uh, the experience of tourism, which I think is kind of him at his bleakest. He says, well, he's talking about how the, the how being a tourist is kind of a self-defeating experience because you want to go experience something unspoiled, something that's kind of untouched by humans, but by going there and experiencing it, you're, you're spoiling it yourself. And he has this line where he says, uh, basically, tourism is in lines and gridlock and transaction after transaction to confront a dimension of yourself that is as inescapable as it is painful. As a tourist, you become economically significant but existentially loathsome, an insect on a dead thing. So the next time you go on vacation, just think about David Foster Wallace Jeez. calling you an insect on a dead thing. Okay, so uh, okay. he's really helping my current, our current. Vacation. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I hope you're enjoying yourself. Okay, but what I've come to realize is that. Uh, Wallace is not so much cynical as he is just really honest and courageous, uh, often willing to acknowledge the darkness or tragedy of certain parts of our experience that we just accept as banal or inevitable. Uh, so he's the kind of writer who can fill an entire page describing, in one long sentence, a certain snapshot experience, drawing our attention to the sheer significance of every moment. And I think that's one of the best gifts that you know any kind of literature can offer uh, to help us recognize the value of our, or importance of something we might otherwise passively overlook. So two particular essays from this book that st stood out to me on this uh, reading. The first is Up Simba, which is an essay he wrote in 2000 for Rolling Stone after spending a week um, on the campaign trail with John McCain's presidential campaign that year. Uh, it's surprising how relevant this still feels. The essay, obviously, um, it touches on the pretense of modern politics, uh, but more than that, it kind of touches about uh, it touches on our own awareness of the sheer pretense of politics, how we interact with certain politicians. Um, in spite of the fact that none of us are fooled by the headlines or the tweets or the scandals we read. We know it's all carefully orchestrated. We know every moment is carefully orchestrated and, and no response is ever really off the cuff. So it's just kind of fascinating how he says not only do we recognize um, that politics is so false nowadays, but how do, we, how do we still vote? How do we still try and engage when we recognize, like, you just have to, you have to read through everything that happens? Uh, the second essay that really stood out is The View from Mrs. Thompson's. Uh, this is an essay about experiencing 9-11, uh, the actual day of September 11, 2001, uh, experiencing it with essentially a group of what I would describe as church ladies. Um, so it's a really curious um, exploration of how he fits and doesn't fit with this sort of salt-of-the-earth demographic of people, um, how he might be a little too honest or a little too cynical to fit in with him, and about the various ways that all of us as a society experience tragedy, in particular experience this one tragedy. So I will say, yeah, when I started reading this book, I was a skeptic of his, but the moment I recognized I was becoming a Wallace fan was when I was reading, I was reading some news article about uh, one of the latest developments in the Trump presidential campaign, and it suddenly it occurred to me, I felt a strong urge of, man, I really wish I could read Wallace's take on this, on the Trump phenomenon. And I realized I had come to really love and value his ability to see right through all of the kind of bullshit of society and a lot of the conversations we're having right now but to do so with real courage and kindness. So, yeah, this week I'm feeling David Foster Wallace, and I'm missing him a lot with a lot of other, along with a lot of other people. Nice. Brent, have you have you seen um, the movie that came out recently, um, The End of the Tour? No, and it's mostly because up until reading these books, I had almost no sense of him. I knew he was significant to a lot of the people in my life, but I had no experience of him. Um, and obviously, yeah, now since reading this, I'm much more interested in David Foster Wallace, the person, um, and yeah, even in Jason Siegel's portrayal of him. 
I love how, I mean, this isn't accurate, but one could <laughs> say that you were started off skeptical of this book, that you were uh, too cynical because of his cynicism. You're like, I'm not <laughs> interested in <laughs> listening to someone do that. I saw too much of myself. <laughs> yeah, and I, I'm, I feel so much, I completely agree. I wish that that was, um, they could get his take on um, what's kind of going on right now politically, especially because, like you said, so much of, if that essay talks so much, since that essay talks so much about um, things being prescripted and feeling inauthentic, I feel like that's um, two of the most ex- uh, extreme candidates in the race right now, Bernie Sanders and uh, Donald Trump, kind of have this movement behind them of people who are very um, excited about the fact that they're talking authentically and they're attracted to what feels like authenticity, whether or not they are you know, just better at orchestrating what they're saying to come off as authentic or not. Um, it really seems like a lot of talk about their popularity has been towards that, and I am fascinated to go in and read that essay now to see what his um, his thoughts on that are. And yeah, I I'm feeling that loss with you, Brent. I'll uh, read it to you later on the train. <laughs> <laughs> well, awesome. This week I'm feeling High Rise, the uh, the British thriller directed by Ben Wheatley. Um, it stars Tom Hiddleston, Jeremy Irons, um, Luke Evans, and Elizabeth Moss. Um, it came out, I think, in um, in April, or it's just now. I think it's just now getting getting um, some release dates in the in the U.S. But it is one heck of a film. It is based on um, J.G. Ballinger's 1975 novel, um, and I'm not a huge fan of most of his books, um, but I really did like High Rise, uh, and I felt like a lot of people have said this is an unfilmable movie, and I think that it's been in the works of somebody trying to make it. Um, since the book came out, but I think um, I think Ben Wheatley's done an incredible job of taking this story that is it's extremely wordy, and I think it's a it's it's a it's a lot of descriptions and a lot of um, I don't know un, unfilmable pieces. I don't want to give anything away, but I, f- I feel like he's done a great job of making this a really a really artsy movie, and it looks it's beautiful. It is a fantastic looking movie. Um, I feel like overall the story is something that may work better as a book still, but I, I really loved, um, the art direction and the, um, the pacing of this movie. So have you guys read the book? No, but I have heard that there is a lot of people have compared this, uh, film to Snowpiercer, which is a film I really love came out a few years ago. Yes. I love that too. Yeah, so this this movie does talks a lot about um, just kind of class distinction, and I know Snowpiercer is a is a film where the poor live in the back of the train and the rich live in the front, and it's about basically a, kind of a drive through that that whole, the whole train to get to, um, and, and you kind of find out more about about the different sections as you go through it, and this kind of does the same thing where the the poor live at the bottom of the high rise and the rich live at the very top, um, but it's a less it's a much less it's a much less linear um, story Ooh. that, <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a much less linear story of of um, of someone kind of going all the way through. Overall, a lot. I feel like this does still work better as a book, but the movie is beautiful, and I do think everyone should get a chance to see it. Is there a cohesive um, kind of story arc that goes through it, or what I've heard about it or seen of it? It looks like you're saying completely beautiful, but would you say it's more of um, like something you might see at an art museum as a film installation, or it's something that um, it like yeah it it definitely has an arc and it definitely has a story and um, 
there there is a plot and there are <laughs> the characters are driven by things and um but i think overall it's not a story that would normally be told today um and especially with i mean the way the way jg ballinger talks about more i guess dystopian things and um kind of his view on the world um we are we're more inclined to look at things in that um that kind of distorted view now um but not I, I I don't I don't feel like America is ready for that in films. People want more of a a, a regular narrative arc and you know a happy ending and um, I don't know I feel like I feel like this isn't a movie that everyone can go see. This is definitely something that will be at art houses, but um, it's not going to be a blockbuster that everyone wants to go take their kids to. It's rated. It's a hard R as well. It's okay. a, it's, it's 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 a there's a there's some graphic nudity and lots of uh, graphic violence as well. But it was it was made for a certain audience, and that audience I think will enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, I think films that uh, challenge the viewer not only in its content but also in the way the story is told are really important. So that's really cool. I'm glad you like it. Yeah, and Tom Hiddleston's amazing. He wears. <laughs> when like, is he not? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, really, every everybody in that film is amazing. I'd say the one the one downside to it is uh, Elizabeth Moss's accent. Elizabeth Moss's accent is a. Uh, not as British as it should be for this, ah, some for this movie, but <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's too bad. I love Elizabeth Moss. She's oh, she's still fantastic in it, but but her accent is a uh, is not great. <laughs> her Brooklyn Catholic accent yeah. is so, um... <laughs> yeah. Um, one one thing that that is super stylized about this movie is everybody's basically wearing the same outfit the whole movie, even though it takes place over like a couple months. Everyone has just this is the outfit they wear. And that's how you know that's who that character is. And oh. that's how they embody it is just through this outfit. So no matter what they're doing, they're all wearing basically the same clothes the entire movie. Oh um, man. And it's 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 just oh yeah, it's 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 a neat artistic style and it's and it's set in the seventies, which is um I mean when the when the book was written, it doesn't it, it doesn't say anything about it being in the seventies, but just the, I mean the style of the clothing, the style of the the architecture and the cars and um it is it is a very unique film. Talk about Elizabeth Moth. That's one of the things that I loved about Mad Men was there were entire uh, pieces written on the outfits and the architecture and the art, art direction in general in Mad Men and what they, that was saying about the characters and mm -hmm. about the story development. And I that happens so rarely, especially um, in films where those pieces are given so much importance. I think it happens a lot in uh, Wes Anderson films, but like yeah. it's that sounds. I'm so into that kind of thing. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, it's gorgeous. But overall, fantastic movie. Um, if you get a chance to see it, I definitely would. So let's move on to film news. This week we've heard a lot about Daniel Craig exiting the James Bond franchise. I know it's something he said right after um, 
right after Spectre came out that the only reason he signed on for that one was because Sam Mendes, the director, was able to, to come back and do that one after Skyfall. Um, but there's been a lot of talk of him leaving the franchise um, and making way for a new actor or actress to play a James slash Jane Bond. Um, so... Probably. <laughs> <laughs> the police is not, it shouldn't happen, it's, it's not going to happen. <laughs> um, so I, I, I know right right now, just from, from, from talks, um, Tom Hiddleston and Jamie Bell um, have had conversations um, to, to play the role. But I just wanted to get from you guys, what's your experience with James Bond and what is, um, who, who would be your front runner? I love James Bond and love James Bond news and grew up with my dad loving James Bond and kind of imparting that on to me. I, so I, in equal parts, love the Roger Moore James Bond and the James Craig. Not and <laughs> big fan, big yeah, fan, James, huge know fan. Know all about it. <laughs> Andy Daniel Craig, James Bond. Um, so like the height of camp and the height of trying to be grounded. Even though this Spectre kind of was seems like it tried to move things back more towards camp. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I I really enjoy the franchise, and um, I'm really interested to see who comes next. My I think. My favorite uh, Bond movie is Casino Royale out of all of them, um, which is, I mean, it's a large swath and it's a lot to go through, but I like how much the franchise has done, how many different areas it's explored, but um, I think it's at its best whenever it's really delving into um, who the human of James Bond is, not the spectacle of what a Bond film is, but that may just be more of like a personal preference or the age I was born into, like when all these gritty person, like humanized reboots were coming into, like I'll cop to all that for sure. But, um, but yeah, I'm really interested to see who the next iteration is and what direction that takes the franchise. Uh, I am in a pretty different camp. I wish Sands were here because my sense is that she would be in a similar camp <laughs> to me, which is I have some exposure to the James Bond films. I played countless hours of GoldenEye on the N64. Uh, I've <laughs> that seen <counts. laughs> I've seen the three uh, Daniel Craig or the the first three Daniel Craig James Bond films. I didn't see Spectre, um, but as much as I can enjoy the films aesthetically, and I think especially Skyfall is just a gorgeous movie, and there's a lot to compliment about it. Uh, I just find the character of James Bond really reprehensible, and he just strikes me as being so such a gross kind of old-fashioned ideal of what a man should be that I have I have trouble getting over that even in the more kind of recent gritty grittier reboots of the film uh, or of the character so yeah I gotta say um I don't really have a horse in the James Bond race just because I think I I think as much as I love Skyfall I just realized I was never going to connect with the James Bond film and I kind of gave up trying to I don't know what you mean I feel like he's very progressive he's <laughs> 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 egalitarian I did not mean that to come across as an attack on anybody at all it's getting real in Chicago this I, no, those are such valid criticisms no, yeah I went I, I went through last year and, and watched all the James Bond movies um, in, in the order that they came out and I, I, I feel like it's an interesting thing to, to watch as a slice of the time um, I feel like each James Bond movie is specifically set in the year it came out and embodies a lot of the feelings of the culture in the year they, they 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 came out. I feel like there's a lot of a lot of sexist stuff in the in in them and a lot of racist stuff in them. And there's oh, yeah. there's just there's just some some things that you're like, yeah, I guess that's 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 just what was happening at I the time. Specifically, so. <laughs> remember in Doctor No, this like Lindsay and I were watching it, and I couldn't believe that it was actually recorded on film and that they let it go into a theater. But you're right, it's a slice of that time. It was 
he was at the pool with a bikini-clad woman, and his boss came out, and he was like, get scared, sweetheart, man talk, and then slaps her on the ass. <laughs> <laughs> and like, what goes, and they have their conversation, and everyone's like, yeah, he's a cool dude. Like, how is this real? How is this real? Oh, man. Um, well, I am 100% on board the Idris Elba train. I think as soon as... I mean, obviously, as soon as Daniel Craig got the job, people started talking about who's going to be the next Bond, and uh, Elba was one of the first names that came up, and I think this would be an amazing direction for the franchise to go in. Uh, recently, there was a publicity photo from the Jungle Book, the new Jungle Book adaptation that has Idris Elba posing with his character, uh, Shere Khan, and in my mind, this just like seals the deal because he just looks so incredibly... like. I'm showing the picture to the other host right now. Mm, we're just shaking looks, our heads in lots of agreement. It's just like... Idris Elba with this huge tiger that's like way bigger than any tiger and it's like Idris Elba is clearly or clearly the more intimidating presence in the picture your presence and just everything about this is like oh this is James Bond this is the new film like his co-star is going to be a tiger and it'll be fantastic um, so yeah I as someone who does not have a horse in this race I'm throwing my hat in with Elba how do you feel about the age of James Bond though because Idris Elba is what is he mid the late 40s right I think so. Yeah, I think he's getting up there. How do you? Yeah, how, do you think that's a good age for James Bond, or do you think James Bond should be a younger guy? Uh, I think that if if they want to take this in any more um, of a kind of more progressive direction in terms of having this be someone who maybe has better respect for women and maybe more of a sense of humor, which is kind of lacking in the um, Daniel Craig films, I think having an older James Bond um, would allow them to have a character who's a little more comfortable in his skin and kind of has kind of worked through a lot of his own emotional damage and baggage and who is just kind of having more fun with it. And I think that if the tone of these, the next series was a little more relaxed and a little more lighthearted, then he could do that really well. Yeah, I would be really into Idris Elba for sure. Um, when I heard that the front runners were, especially whenever I heard that he was being called tube street to do it i was like well screw you now he double deserves it um just like it's really frustrating that that mindset still exists and is still a part of the the box office equation um when i heard about uh tom hiddleston and jamie bell being the main uh ones in contention right now uh i kind of waffle between the two i feel like tom hiddleston is very well suited to it and could do a phenomenal job um i haven't seen his the what was the show he was in that it's like the Night Watchman or something. The Night Manager. The Night Manager, right. Um, I have not seen his portrayal in that film that has got kind of gotten him into these initial talks, but I've heard it's fantastic. And I think he's just incredibly charming and an extremely talented actor. I think he would do a fantastic job. But part of what made me love the Daniel Craig, uh, James Bond movies so much was I wasn't familiar with his work beforehand. And that's very similar to how I am with Jamie Bell. Um, I have not seen Billy Elliot, and he's grown a lot since that role, which is kind of like his largest credit. Um, Didn't you guys all see Fantastic Four? It was so good, right? Right, <laughs> no, everybody? Hard pass. No. Grimace, Grimace? Grimace, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whenever you get all of the colors wrong of Fantastic Four, the thing just looks like Grimace. Um, so... <laughs> Cut that part out. I'm I'm even ashamed of that. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I have not seen any of his work. But I, in general, I think the idea of the movie star is such an interesting, fascinating concept in general because it kind of seems like a contradiction. You want actors to be so good that they embody the character, and you're only meeting this brand new character. But if it's a movie star, you're like, oh, cool! Look what 
George Clooney's doing this time. Um, and right. you start casting people because you're like, oh, this guy needs to be kind of Clooney-esque. Like there's, mm-hmm. that's a thing with a big enough name. So with a role as um, big and with such a, ri- a history as uh, rich and as problematic as James Bond, I think a little bit more of an unknown entity like Jamie Bell would be really um, cool to come into that and be able to do um, to less than just like, you know, give the Hiddleston take on James Bond, like take what James Bond is, take that character in a direction that feels like the character itself is being steered the most. A lot of people have been talking about Henry Cavill as well, which I think is terrible That's, idea. Like, I, I think he would make a great James Bond, but I don't want him to be the James Bond. Like, he's, he's been villain. Superman. He's been like, he's been kind of the uh, the poster boy for what a what a superhero looks like. And I think we need we need somebody else as James Bond for that. We don't need we don't need to kind of move him into that role. Yeah, he has a henchman number two build right now. Like, I know he has the acting chops for it, but. He he's, does. He's, he's going to be in... He can't coexist in those two huge franchise worlds for the yeah. next 20 years. No, not at all. Um, my, my, my thought is I, I, I would want um, someone playing him to be able to play him for a while. And I definitely feel like the, the movies can move toward a more progressive, more, um, a, more in line with, with where the, uh, the world is at right now. Um, and I think Daniel Craig is... I think this is a good time for Daniel Craig to leave and and kind of open it up for someone else to um, be a little bit more relatable in our culture. <laughs> um, and and so so my pick would be Dan Stevens. Um, he's a he's an English actor. He he he's in a uh, Downton Abbey, um, and he is going to be the Beast in the new Beauty and the Beast movie that's coming out. So, what? Yes, I'm so, so excited for that movie. He's too. he's a fantastic actor. If you've seen him in The Guest, um, which was a a movie that came out in 2014, a re- really small movie. It's a kind of a home invasion movie. Um, but it's, it's, he's a fantastic actor and I think he, he'd be someone who could really do a great job of, uh, of taking on that James Bond, James, that James Bond role and moving it in a little bit of a different direction. Do you think he got the beauty and the beast role? Cause they were like, he'd be great at being our guest. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you think that's why? You think that was why? Still Guys? jokes in Chicago. No, nope. <laughs> no. Nope. It's funny to get to see your grimaces in person. It's so much more rewarding. <laughs> <They're always there>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Chicago, Chicago, that toddling town. Chicago, Chicago, I will show you around. I love it, bet your bottom dollar you lose the blues in Chicago, Chicago, the town that Billy Sunday couldn't shut down. On State Street, that great street, I just want to say. They do things they don't do on Broadway. They have the time, the time of their life. I saw a man, he danced with his wife in Chicago. Chicago, my hometown. Chicago. All right. Chicago. Let's move into our main topic. Uh, since we are all here in Chicago having a blast, um, we wanted to talk about what is our favorite piece of Chicago-centric pop culture? Okay, so there was some debate going into this question. Initially, somebody pitched it, and one of the first answers that came to my mind and Lawson's mind was The Dark Knight, which mostly was filmed in Chicago. There's lots of like, there's lots of obvious landmarks and um, architecture, but we did not want this to be just stuff that was created in Chicago. 
Um, we wanted this to be works of art that take place in actual Chicago, so mm-hmm. not Gotham City or anything else, yeah. but stuff that actually occurs in the city of Chicago. Things that actually embody what the city of Chicago is um, and, and, is, and is based there. So, Lawson, you want to kick it off? Sure. Um, so, the piece of pop culture that I picked was um, the track off of Sufjan Stevens' album, Colin Fieldy, Illinois, titled After the City Itself, Chicago. Um, this was the song that played at my high school graduation, guys. Like, at, <laughs> uh, well, everyone got, I said that the wrong way. Everyone at our, uh, church got to pick out a song that played behind a slideshow of you growing up from a little infant baby until you were 18 years old. So all the parents could sit around in a circle and be like, we've watched them grow up and then cry and cry and cry. And I, you got to pick whatever song you wanted. And I picked, uh, Chicago. It Great was choice. resonant to me then, remains resonant to me now. Because you grew up in Chicago, right? Right. No, no. <laughs> it is. It can be interpreted as appropriative in that respect. <laughs> However, um, this song is really. I just feel like there are certain pieces of pop culture. Um, this song is really. I feel like there are certain pieces of art um, that occasionally intersect with pop culture that I'm so thankful for. Um, I'm not as plugged into the art scene or art history scene or like uh, any of these contemporary things as I might wish that I could be. But when uh, something comes out on the radio and genuinely affects me, that is just all the more precious. Um, Chicago is a song uh, that kind of transcends location. It's a song inspired by the city that we're all in right now, but it also is inspired by the truths behind um, the character and the humanity of Chicago that continue to make it the city that's such an important uh, piece of America's national identity. The lines, you came to take us, all things go to recreate us, all things grow, we had our mindset, all things know, you had to find it, all things go. Um, Still just pack such a punch every time I hear them. Um, they speak to the immensely important and vast subjects of like mortality, rebirth, perception, longing, uh, all in a way that only music really can, um, at least to me. Uh, the arrangements behind these verses and lyrics give the words um, and these concepts and lines meaning that the meaning that they deserve in ways that they could never have alone. Um, one of the other things that I love was he released an album. Uh, afterwards that had a bunch of alternate versions of Chicago, um, an acoustic version, an adult contemporary listening version. Um, He actually just released this year the uh, original demo version, and all of these different arrangements help bring out these kind of universal words in different ways, Um, kind of a prism showing different aspects of the the light shining through this prism in in different ways, showing off different colors. I just I, I love the verses of this um, song tell a story of Swift John's character on the Illinois record, but the choruses achieve a rare and difficult feat of speaking what it means to live and to be human. Um, it makes a perfect graduation song and uh, just a great life song, a song that gains more meaning uh, through the more of this messy and beautiful life that we live. Um, there are so few things in life that feel like are poignant touchstones that you can come back to. And whenever something happens that feels really, really important, 
um, that song feels like the soundtrack to it. And Chicago was that to me in 2011 and still is now. Um, love it. Love 2011? Oh, wait, 2007. Okay. That's when I graduated high school. Got it. <laughs> yeah. Like you are way younger than I thought you were. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> yeah. No, no. I'm uh, 18. Uh, no, but yeah, it's been, it's just meant a lot to me for a long time. And it feels like I'm even like cheapening it by putting it into words. But that's the, the exercise of trying to talk about meaningful pop culture, I guess. Are you aware that Donald Glover has created a an album of Sufjan Stevens covers, including Chicago? I did not know this that. This was news to me as well. That's awesome. I am ashamed of myself. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea. Oh I love Donald Glover. I love yeah. the song. I love Sufjan. That's what we'll all be feeling next week. Prepare yourselves. Yeah, yeah seriously. Goodness gracious. When did, when did that come out? Uh, hold on. I need to look this up. I just found this out. I, don't know. I want everyone to know. <laughs> I'm the only one here without a computer. <laughs> We're all actively fact-checking everything he says. Everyone's yes. fact-checking. Oh, really? You graduated high school in 2011 because <laughs> Facebook banks the <laughs> Oh, man. Uh, well, my favorite piece of um, Chicago pop culture, I think, is going to be the Blues Brothers movie, the 1980 um, Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi movie. Ooh, so Chicago. I know, right? It is. And so, like... Growing up, I had never been to Chicago, and I didn't know anything about Chicago. But anytime anybody mentioned Chicago, I thought about that movie, um, and it just—I mean, even even like after I'd been to Chicago for the first time, that like that still just anytime anybody mentioned Chicago, I think about the Blues Brothers, um, and I know it was it was it was filmed here, and there are lots of great landmarks that are that are in there. But um, every time I every time someone mentions Chicago, I think about the. Uh, I guess what was it the fifties, the forties? When is that? When does that movie take place? Have you guys seen that movie? That did no. that movie take place in the seventies? Does it take place? In I the think 70s? It, it's like a neo futurist, like is late two thousand, like like twenty one hundred. What? No, I I think <laughs> I think the Blues Brothers were supposed to kind of be anachronisms in that movie. Like they were from this bygone era, and everything yeah. else was current day in the movie. Oh, this really? tells you how much I've seen it once, and it was years ago. Yeah, I haven't seen it in a long time. But that's that. That's just what I I picture Chicago being two guys in in hats driving around in like a, an old car. It, Lucas, it's a shame that you flew into O'Hare because if you had flown into Midway, you would have been greeted by uh, a life size statue of the Blues Brothers. It's like a five two statue of the Blues, Blues <laughs> Brothers. <laughs> so you mean like a suit store with mannequins in front? Of you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically, any you're talking about the Brooks Brothers, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, oh, Brent, Brent, as the person who actually lives in Chicago, um, what piece of pop culture embodies Chicago to you? Yours has to be the best. Oh, it, man, it's not going to be the best because mine is just sort of Chicago tangential. It's really just an excuse for me to talk about a film I love that kind of flew under the radar. Uh, that doesn't it's necessarily... called Chicago. <laughs> uh, no, this, yeah, this doesn't necessarily embody the character of the city, but I just, it, like I said, it's one of those movies I love to brag about. So uh, the first summer I lived in Chicago was 2012, and I remember at one point I had gone out to visit a few friends out in the west suburbs, and to get back to the city I hopped on a commuter train, um, and as I was riding I looked around and I was like, this train seems so familiar, and I realized it was almost identical to the train featured in the 2011 film Source Code. Source Code is from director Duncan Jones, whose first big movie that kind of brought him onto the public scene. Uh, first big movie was Moon, uh, which came out 2009, stars Sam Rockwell. Uh, Moon, I think, is still his best film. It's probably my favorite of his. Um, and it is this, like, 
hyper-claustrophobic um, kind of puzzle that just unfolds um, on a space station on the moon in which Sam Rockwell is an astronaut, or Sam Rockwell is a scientist um, doing various experiments and mining. Uh, and near the beginning of the movie, something happens that really surprises him and surprises us. And from there, it's just almost every scene reveals more of this secret and more of this puzzle. And as you go, um, it's just continually new surprises that make you reconsider everything that came before. So Source Code is somewhat similar. Um, Source Code, I think, is a little more ambitious and a little tougher to keep up with. But Source Code is, tells the story, essentially, of a train accident. There's a commuter train headed to Chicago um, that eventually blows up. And so uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, who plays the protagonist, is sent to try and investigate what happened. And the way that he investigates it is through some kind of futuristic science technology, they're basically able to implant his consciousness into one of the passengers on the trains. Uh, so essentially Jake Gyllenhaal is able to experience the last eight minutes of this train ride, uh, and, but he's fully conscious so he can walk around, he can ask questions, he can investigate. It's similar to something almost like Groundhog Day or Edge of Tomorrow, the recent Tom Cruise film, Great where you're going through the same sequence of events again and again, but each time you can take a different approach to see what happens. So yeah, this is a movie that even that concept itself really intrigued me and it, um, and I think it's really smart, and he does interesting stuff. But as the film goes, you find out more and more about Jake Gyllenhaal and why he was picked for this mission. Um, he starts to think a lot bigger than the train. The, the film goes from being kind of sci-fi to almost being having elements of fantasy. Um, but it's, uh, it's so compelling. Um, it's really well acted. It's Jake Gyllenhaal and Michelle Monaghan, another actress I love. Um, and yeah, uh, so for the most part, it takes place on a, on a train headed to Chicago. There is a sequence that takes place at Cloudgate, the famous Chicago bean sculpture. Um, but it's an excellent movie. Like I said, it, it kind of flew under the radar. Um, evidently there's a sequel in the works or there has been a sequel in the works. Oh, wow. Um, but every time I find myself on a metro train headed downtown, I wonder if Jake Gyllenhaal's sitting on the next train over. Spoiler alert, he never has been. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so any honorable mentions, y'all? Any other uh, works of pop culture that you thought about as you were uh, picking your favorite? iRobot. Is that Chicago? That's Chicago. Future Chicago. Yep. Future Is it Chicago. called New Chicago? I don't know, better not be. Chicago too. That would ruin it for me. <laughs> uh, I was very tempted to uh, use the book uh, Devil in the White City by Eric oh, Larson. Um, that's one it. Of, uh, he's written a few different kind of historical novels that... Um, are most are I think entirely based in fact um, in Devil in the White City, all of the dialogue between various people in the story is um, actual dialogue lifted from whether it's court records or testimonies or anything. So the, so everything the characters say in that book, as far as I know, is stuff that the other the original people he's writing about were attributed to say. Um, it's being made into a film right now, uh, starring Leonardo DiCaprio, which promises to be really phenomenal. That's awesome. Yeah, my honorable mention, I don't even know if it quite works, but The Audacity of Hope by Barack Obama, because he was so plugged in here. <laughs> I was thinking about that, and I was like, I don't have enough to say about that. But, um, yeah, it was one of the only like political books that I've read, and like that's such a big part of his life, and so I, that kind of felt like it connected. What was the recent Obama first date movie? South Side with You. And that's, yeah, that's, and that's not out yet, right? Oh, no, so it's not recent. Not, it's, not recent. It's coming out soon, okay. yeah. I think it's been making the festival circuit. Also thought about Home Alone, another little yep. Chicago classic. It was funny rewatching. So good. This is my first year living in Chicago. It's my first winter living outside of Texas. So it was funny watching Home Alone and just remembering that all growing up, whenever I would watch a Christmas movie set anywhere outside of Texas, 
the idea that snow would just cover the ground and stick around for weeks on end was like it was straight out of a fantasy movie. Like, I had no I sense know. of this, and so I'm watching Home Alone, and I'm like, oh yeah, like that actually happens. This is part of that stuff. <laughs> this is real. Yeah, I thought it was just like sadistic postcard illustrators <laughs> being, like putting this lie out there for everyone to oh, inspire gosh. to. <laughs> okay, any other cool. Chicago honorable mentions? Maybe uh, some Jupiter Ascending, which I saw filming. It was the first time I ever saw a movie in production. <laughs> Gross. Was that? Yeah, it's kind of a bummer. Does that does that take place here? There are yeah. there are there's the big kind of the first act takes place in Chicago. Okay. Can we do dishonorable mentions, uh, starting with Jupiter Ascending, <laughs> <laughs> and then going into like all the Terminator sequel, not Terminator sequels, uh, Transformer sequels? Oh gosh, yeah, they I forgot the all those. Up. Yeah. yeah. Can we talk about all the movies that have destroyed Chicago <laughs> or apocalyptic Chicago? Quite a few. All of them. those. Yeah. Jeez. And Ferris Bueller's Day Off, of course. Uh, if you take any oh, tour anywhere in Chicago. Way. Uh, whether it's a boat tour, whether it's a uh, bus, anything, they'll point out at least one place that was featured in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. That's a good one. Yeah, Ferris Bueller's Day Off is incredible. Awesome. Um, so let's tell everybody where, where we can find you online. Lost and Soured. Yeah, feel free to say hey over on Twitter. I'm at Lawson West. Um, and follow me on Instagram under the same handle. Brent Bailey. I am most places online under the handle B-R-P-A-B-A. And find my writing, find my tweets and pictures, and all kinds of other things. I wish you would just say that phonetically, like bra pa pa, And I'm Lucas Wright. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Lucas and Stuff. Um, you can read what I write there, and you can also read what I write on iTunes reviews for my own podcast. So. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of characters left over in both cases. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, we'll see you guys next week. Bye. Bye.